How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This is a CBC podcast. We don't think encampments are a solution ultimately either, but it is the reality of what we're dealing with. They're not going to go away just because we move them. Hi, I'm Ian Hanamancing in Vancouver. Welcome to Cross Country Checkup, the podcast. Looking at from a public safety is something needs to be done now. This can't wait. Uh, we know it's going to get colder. We've been pretty fortunate, but yet there's fires almost daily. Our question, are homeless encampments keeping people safe or putting them in danger? How is your community dealing with homelessness? They're not there because they chose to be. I think we should leave those people alone. This particular camp, there's lots of needles around, so the kids don't use the treehouse anymore. Four weeks ago, I had an encampment that, you know, it's on private property I have to deal with. They were setting fires, and it was just incredible. I do not personally like encampments. However, I do view them as a necessary evil. This program is the ideal place to tackle this conversation. There's so many different perspectives, and we have 90 minutes to work our way through them. Let's start with this. Everyone in Canada deserves a safe, secure place to live. There are residents of homeless encampments who say that is the safest available option for them. You'll hear one of those residents in a few minutes. But sometimes those who prey on vulnerable people seek them out in encampments, and those encampments around the country have led to complaints about noise, needles, risk of fire. In Edmonton this weekend, an encampment was removed. 18 people were reportedly living there, and the city says there are shelter spaces available for them. But in Edmonton, and in many places across the country, this remains a controversial issue. We have some interesting voices lined up. Our question, are homeless encampments keeping people safe or putting them in danger? How is your community dealing with homelessness? All right, and let's start the show with someone who is living in a homeless encampment right now. Erica Stewart has been in a tent city in Kelowna, British Columbia for the past year and a half, and that's where we've reached her. Hi, Erica. Hi. Uh, what's it like living in tent city? Um, I mean, some days are a little bit chaotic. Some days are, you know, they're normal days. Other days are a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. And, and describe for us, your living situation like is it literally a tent um yeah and it's, uh, yeah go ahead yeah it yeah no it's a tent and um with some tarps and a little bit of a front space i guess <laughs> and then in terms of cooking and and uh and and washing up where, where do you do that um They've turned off the water supply in the Kelowna tent city at the moment. Um, so we don't have running water. Uh, so most of the washing up will be done at either our, um, it's called the Metro, which is a place that we go provided by a church group um, for a heating and they serve us some food. There's also two showers there that we can sign up to use. Um, they have a couple of also just normal washrooms. Um, and past that, we'd have to, you know, talk to somebody we know in the community. 
Eric, you can choose uh, how much of this you want to share, but but how did you end up living in an encampment? Um, I was uh, involved in a poor relationship, I guess we'll say, um, which led to uh, he basically took most of my money and uh, there was a bit of, you know, of a toxic relationship and it just sort of ended up that I ended up, you know, bouncing around from people's houses um, to not having a car anymore and um, just ending up down there. We're speaking live with Erica Stewart. She's a resident of Kelowna's Tent City Encampment. Our question today, are homeless encampments keeping people safe or putting them in danger? How is your community dealing with homelessness? And you can take part in the program by calling us at 1-888-416-8333. You can also text us. Our text number is 226-758-8924. And Erica, I'm sure some people listening are wondering why you don't choose to live in a shelter inside a building rather than the encampment? Um, I was in a shelter for a brief period of time. Um, They have curfews and um, a lot of sort of restrictions. Um, I just felt they weren't really sort of helping me move forward. Um, You're also preyed upon sort of in the shelter system, not only by the people you're in the shelter with, but by a lot of the staff. I find... um, they do um, take a lot of your belongings. You, you see them online being sold, or they just take them home with them if you have anything that's nice. There's a lot of theft. Um, and just, yeah, some of the shelters in our city anyways uh, are co-ed, and I just don't really feel like they're a safe place for me. Now, the the shelter you're, or, or the, the tent city you're in, presumably, I'm guessing, is co-ed as well. How... How, how, safe, um, how, how safe are you like there? Just, I mean, there's always dangers, um, but I feel a little bit safer. I'm surrounded by a few friends in their own little tents around me. Um, and I've kind of become part of a community that's in Tent City. So we all sort of take care of each other. And um, I don't know, I, I feel safe there personally. As you know, in many places across the country, uh, Edmonton, I could just list city after city after city, there are debates about encampments. There are encampments that are being dismantled. That in particular is what's happening in Edmonton right now. What would you say to to voters, but also city officials in those places uh, who feel like uh, for everybody's safety, including the residents, they should dismantle the encampments? Um, I mean, some encampments are safer than others, um, especially for fire safety. Um, I personally enjoy the one that I'm in because, you know, we work with bylaw to make sure that we have like a 10 foot space in between tents. We're trying to make it as safe as possible so that if something does happen, you know, we're not blighting the next person on fire or something like that. Um, We're not... um, trying like we have fire extinguishers in some of our tents to make sure that you know we can put out a fire if there is one we all sort of band together to keep each other safe um other encampments aren't necessarily as um overseen by bylaw or the city as much maybe perhaps Mm -hmm. and so they are a little bit more reckless and a little more dangerous in sense of their fire safety or, you know, just the way that they're constructed even. Um, 
That being said, I don't think that dismantling them is the solution whatsoever. Putting people's things and taking everything from them and then letting them drift around and having to start all over again is not helping lift anybody out of homelessness. You know what I mean? Um, Having everything taken is just putting you right back at square one. And that's not you know, helping anyone. It's really just a cycle of losing everything, starting over again, starting over again. It's really exhausting. Yeah. What is the solution then? Um, I think that working with the city is more vindictive of being successful. Um, you know, having a place that you can know is going to be there is, you know, always a little bit comforting. Um, not being scared that everything's going to be gone every time you walk away from it is, you know, a lot of anxiety and a lot of, you know, creates a lot of hectic stress in someone's life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, knowing that your your stuff is there and, you know, you're allowed to be there is always a little bit of a safer feeling. We're speaking live with Erica Stewart, who's a resident of Kelowna's tent city encampment. Uh, Erica, do you, do you think to yourself... And I don't know what the time frame would be in six months and in two years. Do you think to yourself, you know, I'd like to be someplace different at a certain time and this is where I'd like to be? Absolutely. Of course, I'd want to be housed. Um, I don't know what that necessarily looks like or my personal time frame. Um, I know I'm working with uh, the city. I've done a vulnerable housing assessment um, almost two years ago. I'm on a list somewhere for some sort of housing. Um and uh, it's unfortunate that there's not more housing available to, you know, put more of us in, unfortunately, that's affordable. I know, especially in the city I'm in, like, the rent is just astronomical. Mm-hmm. And the social assistance is nowhere near um, the amount that I would need to be in somewhere and be able to eat and be sheltered, you know. So I, d- I don't know how we get those numbers to the correct numbers or have the spaces that are available to us that will be reasonable for pricing and a safe place that we can, you know, maintain. People across the country may not know, Erica, that uh, Kelowna can get really cold in the winter. And I think you have a cold snap in the forecast coming up in a few days. We do. We do. How is that going to affect you? Um, Well, you just sort of make sure that you have enough blankets and make sure that um, you know, sometimes a few of us will sit in one tent so that we, you know, <laughs> as much as it sounds silly, like body heat and just all being in one space does keep it much warmer, mm-hmm. um, making sure that your house is like wind resistant and, you know, that you have some sort of insulation around, um, spaces that aren't, you know, as weatherproof mm-hmm. to make sure that you're you're warm enough and make sure that you have blankets, make sure that you have enough clean, dry socks, um, wearing a lot of layers, things like that. Doesn't sound silly at all, uh, Erica. Thank you so much for sharing your story and I wish you the best, especially in the next few days when it's going to turn so cold. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Erica Stewart is a resident of Kelowna's Tent City Encampment. Stay tuned. A bit later, we're going to speak with a mayor in a different part of the country who has tried to have encampments removed. And in the meantime, we'd love to hear from you our question, are homeless encampments keeping people safe or putting them in danger? How is your community dealing with homelessness? You can call us at one 888 or connect with us at cbc.ca slash 
Aircheck. Now, according to the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness, this is an issue which is getting worse. It found a 40% increase in chronic homelessness between February 2020 and October 2023. To find out more about that, let's bring in Tim Richter. He's the president and CEO of the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness, and we reached him in Calgary. Hi, Tim. Hey, good afternoon, Ian. So according to your organization, homelessness is is getting worse. There's more of it Mm -hmm. uh, since the start of the pandemic. Why the increase? Well, the increase is really caused by the uh, cost of living and the increased cost of rent. I think homelessness, it's important to know, uh, homelessness is caused by the high cost of rent and lack of uh, availability uh, of units. It's not caused by mental illness or addiction or any other personal uh, fault or failing. It's a simple lack of affordable housing supply. So over the last few years, since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, the cost of housing has increased exponentially. And you see more and more people like Erica forced out onto the street. I know you're fighting a cold or an illness, so if you have to yeah. cough, uh, you know, feel free to, to <laughs> do that. Um, well, let's talk about addiction and mental illness for a second. And and I am not uh, tying that at all to, to fault or weakness. But mm-hmm. um, it, 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 if it's not the cause of homelessness, is it a factor? Well, think about it this way. Imagine, and this is an analogy I picked up from some friends in the U.S., Imagine a game of musical chairs. In, in that game, there's a bunch of kids. There's 10 kids and 10 chairs. And the music starts. Kids sit down. They take away a chair. You know, the kid, uh, say, one kid that is, doesn't play the game, you know, aggressively loses. And then more chairs are taken away. More kids uh, fall out. Another kid who has a bad ankle doesn't, doesn't get in the, in the last chair. And at the end, there is um, one healthy fit, assertive, confident boy in the last chair. Now, did those people, did the kids playing the game lose the game because of, you know, the sore ankle or how they played? Or did, you know, did they lose the game because there's not enough chairs, right? Chairlessness is the, is the you know, outcome of that game. And the same thing here. So in a market where there's less and less housing available, uh, people who struggle with addiction and mental illness soon find themselves um, being forced out because they can't. It's harder for them to compete for that increasingly expensive rental unit. Yeah, I mean, the reason I ask this, and and absolutely, it's not to stigmatize people who may be uh, dealing with those issues as well as not having a home. Um, but I just think in terms of trying to figure out how to provide solutions, clearly a supply of housing is critical. Right. But I'm guessing, but you tell me, it's also important to, to have better supports for people who may be dealing with other issues like, like mental illness and addiction. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And, you know, Housing First is one way that, that we can do that. Now, I want to go back to Erica's, uh, mm-hmm. Erica's interview. And there was something really important, like just that was such a good interview for a lot of reasons. But, you know, she's in Kelowna. My, my parents were in, uh, are in Kelowna, and they were evacuated in the fire in 2003. And when they were evacuated, they went to a reception center, and then they were put into a hotel. Now, for Erica, she is being forced to move, in, went to an unsafe shelter. That wasn't good for her. So she moved into an encampment. Now, why is it that the housing solutions provided for people who lose their house due to the cost of rent, why are they different than the housing solutions for people who lose their homes due to a natural disaster? 
there's really no different. Yes, you know, they're going to need some wraparound supports and other things. But, you know, there's a lot of people who were evacuated during the fire in Kelowna who needed other supports as well. Right. But the, but for because of stigma, I think mm-hmm. we presume that homelessness is caused by some kind of personal fault, fault or failing. Therefore, we don't provide the same solution. Yeah, ultimately, I think the solution's the same. I, th- I think that's a really good example. Um, the city of Edmonton, as I as I'm sure you know, dismantled mm-hmm. uh, encampments in the last few days, and and this is the latest in a wave of of evictions that began in early December. Mm-hmm. We asked the mayor of Edmonton and the chief of police uh, if they would do an interview on our show today. Both declined. Edmonton's mm-hmm. chief of police, Dale McPhee, did speak in early December to CBC about why these encampments need to be dismantled. I mean, we've got first responders pulling people that are literally burnt to death out of fires. That's not okay. Uh, as cold weather gets, you got nylon tents. Um, you know, then you obviously have some of the people that are in those encampments, uh, uh, criminal activity that's preying on some of the vulnerable population. You've got public health concerns. Uh, I've worked uh, parts of three shifts here over the last few weeks just to go out there and talk to people and see what is going on and the reality is we've last two years we went from 6,500 encampment complaints to just about 15,000. This is not okay. This needs a different approach. These things all need to come down. Tim, that was the Edmonton Police Chief Dale Mm -hmm. McPhee last month. Two people were killed in fires at homeless encampments in Edmonton between January 1st last year and the beginning of December. Another 19 were injured in that time. So so the chief of police is saying that homeless encampments need to be dismantled, that they're not safe. What's your reaction to that? Well, it's frightening. It's like the encampments and homelessness aren't safe, but what they're doing in simply chasing them off with an enforcement measure is actually is increasing the danger. Because like Erica said, she was with her friends, she has stuff to stay warm and, you know, survive this upcoming cold snap in, in Kelowna. But if you chase people out, you take their tents, you take their warm possessions, they take the things away that they need to survive, you don't solve the problem, right? Mm-hmm. And if you want if you want to if you want to keep these people safer, you need to move them into somewhere safer, not take their tents and push them around town. And in Edmonton, those tents, just different tents, same people, popped up the next day. So his approach in Edmonton is not solving the problem, and it's, in fact, making it exponentially more dangerous for people. You know, I read a news story, I think, on CBC uh, this morning from Edmonton about the latest dismantling of an encampment that happened yesterday. And, and I don't have the number in front of me, but I think it said that 19 people were living in that encampment and that there are 19 spaces available in shelters. Uh, does that mm-hmm. ring true to you? Is that good enough? Well, I think part of the challenge is often where you see encampments, you also see problems in shelters. As Erica said, you know, they weren't safe for her. There's a lot of shelters, for example, that you have to meet certain conditions. Many of those people may not meet them. Uh, there are shelters that uh, people feel very unsafe in. Uh, so it's it's shelters are not enough. So you're basically, what the police service in Edmonton are doing, is taking these tents away and saying, well, there's shelter available. But but for many of these people, they just can't go into them or Mm -hmm. the spaces that are said to be available aren't. Well, Tim, thank you very much for speaking with us and thanks for soldiering through your uh, your cold. I appreciate (laughs) that. (laughs) Right on. Thanks, Ian. 
Tim Richter is the president and CEO of the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. The question on cross-country checkup this week, are homeless encampments keeping people safe or putting them in danger? How is your community dealing with homelessness? Uh, in the last half hour of the show, by the way, a, a complete change of pace with our Ask Me Anything, and it's about New Year's resolutions for those of us who are fortunate enough to be able to to pay attention to things like that. Uh, we have a registered dietitian and personal trainer, and we want your questions about health, fitness, and the new year. You can call now to get uh, in the queue early for that, and you can also call, of course, on our main topic one 416 8333 or go to cbc.ca slash Let me read some of the comments that have come in via Aircheck from Anne Selfie. She's in British Columbia. I live in a tiny village on a remote island. Only a fraction of our island is populated. But there are people living in the forested areas and tents, vehicles, makeshift shacks. We come across them while hiking sometimes. No one should be homeless. Shelters are not an answer. They are a bandage. Kimber Bojema, uh, via air check from Brantford, Ontario, says the homeless encampments where I live have meant no-go zones around recreational trails and raw sewage into our river. Fires where rescue can't reach them, rampant drug use, physical violence. Our main city park is not safe because of paranoid or just territorial people. And uh, Myra Razor uh, is in Montreal. She says, I've been a social worker with homeless for over 25 years. Camps are dangerous. Disease, rapes, thefts, fights, medical emergencies, drug dealers, predators, sick animals. Why would encampments be any kind of solution? Okay, let's go to the phone lines. 1-888-416-8333. Alan Bayan is in Salmon Arm, British Columbia. Hi, Alan. Hello, Ian. How do you... uh, Uh, Go ahead. Yes, yes. I volunteer... My wife and I, we do a volunteer shift at the Salvation Army here in Salmon Arm, and they operate a food bank and a cafe, and and we work in the cafe. And homeless people come in between the hours of 9 a.m. and 2 p.m., and we provide them with food and a warm, safe environment, and they can do laundry and they can have a shower. But what I see in our town is... Most of these shelters, like the city has just, um, we have a 25-bed shelter, which has just opened up before, uh, in early December. Mm-hmm. And, and as soon as that, and as soon as it opened, there was a tent encampment next door, and the city went in, and they bulldozed it. Now, we probably have, in, in this cafe that we operate, we see up to 40, 50 people a day. So there are still people living in tents. Mm-hmm. And, and the problem that, that I see with shelters is that a lot of them are just a large open room. And people don't like that. I mean, what they want is to have a little tiny house, like the size of a bedroom, mm-hmm. that would be heated that would have a light and that would have a bed. And then within a area, you would have a, a place where you would have meals and you could have showers and laundry. And then they could lock this little building up and they could have all their possessions in there. Most of the shelters do not allow them to bring in much more than a backpack. So they're mm-hmm. really worried about their stuff being stolen. Yeah. And there's always rules. 
Now, to operate our shelter, which was funded through BC Housing, for 25 beds for one year, it's going to be $1.5 million. Now, that's $60,000 a bed. I would prefer to see them give more money to homeless people, and I think it would be more cost-effective. I mean, like, you give the money to people who do not have serious mental problems and are not hopelessly addicted. But there was a study done through the University of BC Mm -hmm. where they gave $7,500 each in one payment to 50 people that they had selected, and it improved their lives. I mean, Mm -hmm. they spent something like 99 days less being homeless. Yeah. I I don't know that study, obviously, Alan, but but it sounds intriguing. Um, And it also, you know, you think back to what Tim Richter said a few moments ago about his parents uh, being in the fire zone in 2003 in Kelowna and nobody put them in a a large room with a whole bunch of other people, you know, with only a backpack and and a lot of rules. So it is interesting kind of the, the value judgments we make about who gets shelter and what kind of shelter they get. Thank you very much for calling in. All right. Thank you, Ian. Let's go from Salmon Arm to Toronto. Robert Dodds is calling us. Hi, Robert. Hello. How are you? Good. I, I see in the notes here that you, you used to live in, in an encampment. Tell me about yeah. that. Yes, I did. Um, it was during COVID, um, which was a very difficult time. Um, I got kicked out of a shelter. I've been homeless uh, on and off since I was 16, but mostly not. Um, but just stuff happened in my life, whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, most recently, yes, I was in a encampment. Um, luckily, I was beside a church that uh, supported me. Um, I had friends around me. It was a, ended up being a fairly large encampment right near Young and Blur. Mm-hmm. Um, so right downtown Toronto. And um, it was it was difficult, um, no doubt. And they aren't safe, but you know what? There's no... Well, I eventually, me and my friends, Quite a few other uh, um, friends and, and folk got, got housing through the Toronto, uh, city of Toronto, mm-hmm. uh, um, and I think they did a very good job during that time um, with the hotel work and such forth and so on. I know a lot of people weren't happy with it. It cost a lot of money, but it did get, get people off the street. Mm-hmm. Hey, Robert, um, can I ask, yes. Can I? and I don't mean specifically with an address attached, but can I ask your, your living uh, circumstance now? Well, uh, for the last uh, uh, two years, two and a half years, I've been, um, I'm in Toronto Community Housing. I have my own place. Um, I have my beautiful dog with me. Uh, well, she's not really mine, but whatever, Mary Jane. <laughs> and um, uh, no, I feel, it took me a while, honestly, six months to get feel, feel safe here. Because um, I've just been, you know, on the streets and in shelters, and I heard about other people talking about shelters, and some of them were not fun. Yeah. Um, I was lucky to have uh, meet some really good friends that, you know, we all had our back. And we also had the staff's back because they can't do anything if somebody, you know, comes in that's all messed up on. And and I have so much sympathy and empathy for people. I'm addicted, alcoholic. Um, I, um, I've done some work and I'm doing much better. That's why I can still be here. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and, but I, I can see there's, there's no, you know, get rid of a tent or get rid of the whole encampment, Allen Gardens, whatever you want to do, and where do they go? To another yeah. place, under the, you know, under the Don Valley or, or Gardner Expressway. Because mm-hmm. there's no services or there's not enough. Not yeah. because there's none. So, um, so I, Robert, you, so you lived four months 
in an encampment. You're young and bloor in Toronto. Yep. And and then and now you're living inside uh, with with your own place. Yes. So so let me ask you this question then and and yeah. you know what's the best approach for society let's say for the city of Toronto to try to get people out of encampments what what, what should they be doing That's a it's uh, a very in-depth question Yeah I know uh, I know um you know I hear uh, uh, you know I, I uh, love Olivia Chow. I've actually met her a couple times, and her ex-husband—I mean, sorry, her passed-away husband, mm-hmm. uh, Jackie's. But whatever, um, yep. you know. And, and we're all talking. Every level of government's talking about it, but actually, nobody's really doing anything. They're yeah. talking about, you know, we get five hundred thousand immigration immigrants, mm-hmm. which is actually fine. Mm-hmm. We need them. We're all immigrants, except the well, yep. even the even the Aboriginals are. They yep. came across our aunt, whatever. But but um, let me but, just say, Robert, yeah. I you know it, it's not it's not fair. I, I'm not asking you to solve the problem. It's too big a problem for anybody to to address that. I'm just wondering, based on your personal story and what you've seen among friends, if you had you know, the the ear of government or the power yourself to make, let's say, a significant change to get people out of encampments into more stable housing. Give me an example of what you would what you would advocate for. Um, again, uh, um, I would advocate for a lo- in a lot of cases, I'd advocate for um, more mental health mm-hmm. uh, um, support, more addiction, way more addiction support. Seen way too many people pass away in front of me, um, and, and that's some of the very, it's very upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um, um, sorry. Yeah, I, I can't but, imagine. Um, uh, um, but uh, you know, but also everything doesn't work for everybody. Some people don't, you know, don't want to go to shelters. I understand that, man. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some people don't. They, they want to stay. They like the freedom. They like they're institutionalized. They don't want to go back. Um, you know, they feel if there's a lock on their doors, or they're they're, they're restrained. Mm-hmm. And um, but, but I, I don't know a solution. I just think that I hope. Like when I was in grade eight, and the guidance counselor asked me, "What do you want to do when you're 50? Mm-hmm. I didn't say I want to be homeless. Nobody else does. They no. don't want. We don't want to be there. They don't want yeah. to be there. And I, you know, I still do support and I, I uh, do what I can to help people. Now that I'm in the situation I am, but again, for me, it still feels uh, perilous. Yeah, it still feels like it might fall apart any time. And and I, I won't keep you much longer, Robert. No but uh, but uh, when you say per- it still feels perilous, what do you think might go wrong? Um, just, I, I, you know, I have my own issues, mm-hmm. obviously, um, you know, I, um, but I, I, I just feel, cause, cause I've been, I've done great in my life in some areas, like, mm-hmm. you know, worked for ages, made lots of money, but I spent it all on, I got, you know, whatever. And mm-hmm. I just feel like, you know, I've been so successful right now, not hugely successful, but doing good, doing good for myself, that it's soon going to fall down. Um, whether it's, you know, cause I don't, cause there's not enough support. Yeah. Um, I'm getting a lot of support way more than most people I know. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and I really appreciate that. And it's so loving. And it's so, um, but, you know, a lot more people need it. And a lot of people can't reach out for it either. Yeah. Robert, I so appreciate hey, that you, you you took the time to call and that you are willing to tell your story. And your story is so compelling. And I'm sure I speak for lots of people who are listening. I, I wish you the best. And I hope that uh, Thank you so much. there are no perils and- ahead. In my last, in my last uh, little bit, yep. Everybody, do your, call your MPs, email them, your MPPs, tell them what's going on, man. Like I said, your kids did not ask to be uh, um, on the streets when they're forty or twenty. Yeah, they Robert, never did. Thank you so much. Cheers. Y'all have a great day. You're listening live to Cross Country Checkup. We're in CBC Vancouver, but of course can be heard across the country. I'm Ian Hanamansing. And our question this week, are homeless encampments keeping people safe or putting them in danger? How is your community dealing with homelessness? Our next caller is uh, Linnea Holm, who's in Jaffray, British Columbia. Hi, Linnea. Hello. Uh, Well, you know, picking up on on what we just heard about... uh, kids and aspirations and no one ever hopes for or plans to be homeless. I see in the notes here that that your son is uh, is unhoused. Yeah. And yeah, just echoing what that last person said, I mean, mm-hmm. when you're writing, you know, what you want to be in school, it certainly was never, I want to live on the street, I want to, you know, have addictions or whatever. And the thing is, the people, everybody that's on the street has a mom and a dad. Or mm-hmm. they had a mom and a dad. And something has happened in their lives that have put them there. It's not a choice. You know, it's kind of where they ended up due to circumstances. And yes, some, you know, you, some might have kind of got their self-inflicted, but at that point, it doesn't matter. You're there. And for the longest time, I couldn't understand, you know, I beg my son, why don't you go to a shelter? So when we had to go looking for him one time, we drove past a couple of the shelters in Edmonton, and I'm like, oh my gosh, these poor people. And I totally understand why my son wouldn't want to live there, um, because those people need so much help. And it just, you know, obviously it's just, you know, they can't, the help's just not there. Mm-hmm. And and the big thing is mental illness and and just the structuring of life, like, you know, um, just the physical giving food and, and bedding and, and whatever is great, but it needs to go beyond that. Um, they just need, yeah, just more mental health support and kind of try to encourage a future. Like, what 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 are we going to aim for and work toward? And that's all in the mental health of it. Mm-hmm. And, you and- know, another thing that crossed my mind is, if, like, I just heard about these two um, homeless camps being broken up. And so usually my son and his partner prefer to live on their own in a green space somewhere. They don't want to be with everybody else. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, you know, the, the encampments, because it's a green space and you can hide away from people, it kind of grows and grows. So now I just heard about this actually today. Well, I have no way to get hold of him. He could possibly go to a library, and there's an app he can download to get my number and contact me through um, messaging, but he hasn't done that so far. And then, of course, my mind is racing. So what happens if if something did catastrophic happen? How would I ever know? Because every time his every time he got removed, the first thing they did is the you know the authorities, the police, or whoever take their stuff, and he kind of said, "Hey, will I get that back? That 
that had my computer and my my numbers and everything, and he never did get it back. So he went for over, oh, quite some time, well over a year, maybe two. He didn't have any ID. He didn't have any Alberta health. He had no ID. So what if something catastrophic happened? Would I ever know? How long would I ever, you know, I've just been so blessed that every time, every few months we go up there and I kind of, you know, the church is praying for me, so I kind of get in the right spot and find him. I, I can't, I can't, happen? I can't imagine, as a parent of adult kids, I can't imagine what that is like for you. I, and and so, exactly. I mean, I I always hope on this program, I think it's true to an extent, that, that policymakers are listening or their staff is listening and can pass this on to them. So for mayors and police chiefs and MPs, uh, Linnea, wh- what's your message for them? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, I... I help. But I'm not the person in authority. I don't have the education for this help. But I just think of all the people that are unemployed. My goodness, can we not train them to address, to be more mental health workers, more social workers, more, you know, the help that's there? Because it seems like we're throwing a lot of money at this situation, but we're just not you know, and talking like the gentleman before me is such a great resource because he's been there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I want to ask you. I want to ask you a question that that I know is is it, it kind of sounds simplistic, but I think mm-hmm. y- you'll be able to tell that you can take this in a in a meaningful place. If, if somebody's listening to this and they hear, well, you know, Linnea will you know has a home. She'll she'll give her son a bed. He he can find a home. Uh, why doesn't he do that? There are so many circumstances that come into play. Um, one, they they don't. Uh, my son is an adult. He doesn't want to have to live at his mom's place. Mm-hmm. And another thing is, he's become so accustomed to this lifestyle that it's almost like it's a norm and it's an accepted norm. And for sure, he could come home and live, but he, you know, has. He, in fact, has for a period of time, but um, there's always the hope, oh, it's going to get better, or this is supposed to happen, Um, we're going to work on this um, job building, and then this is going to happen, but when you don't have, and there's a a bit of accountability, too, um, whereas you've got to, you know, there's got to be some accountability, okay, did we work on this, did we meet this? And here's the next thing we need to do to become employable, to be, you know, to get a house and and also address the mental illness behind the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I appreciate your call so much. Thank you very much for uh, getting in touch with us, Linnea. Thank you. And I should say for those of you who are listening, particularly those who have a connection to this story, a personal connection, either because you have been... Uh, unhoused or or have a relative who has been, uh, you know, I, I may ask the question, how do you fix this? I know that you don't have to have the answer. Nobody really has the answer, but it's just interesting hearing these different perspectives. Uh, and so you can give us a call at 1-888-416-8333. You can also connect online at cbc.ca slash aircheck. Uh, Valerie Marsh is in Ottawa. Hi, Valerie. Hi. Um, how do you feel about uh, about homeless encampments and, and how your community is dealing with homelessness? Well, I feel that our community at large is dealing quite poorly with it. Uh, mm-hmm. We're a large city. 
and we seem to always gravitate towards giant solutions where we can house tons of people in the same dwelling. I think that's a very bad system that we need small options so that people can choose different small housing groups that are more secure and supportive. I live in the downtown core of Ottawa. I chose this area in the Byward Market to live in because I lost my sight and my husband's also blind. And we thought by living centrally, we would have less difficulty getting around and about to services and whatnot, groceries and this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. However, um, since COVID, the homeless boom in our city is immense. People have, in warmer weather, just been lying out on the street everywhere. It's impossible for a blind person with a white cane to walk around them without stepping on them. And I did get white cane instruction (laughs) recently. She tried to advise me on how to avoid it, but it's always a gamble. I feel very unsafe because I know if I do step on someone, I'm going to hurt them, Mm -hmm. and that's going to create a difficult reaction for all of us. I don't need this. I do feel... I pay a great deal in taxes where I live, and I'm happy to pay it, but I would like to see the city spend it on proper accommodation, uh, supports for alcohol, supports for drugs. I think that the old school way of handling this, which is like we don't allow that in our shelter or it's illegal to have drugs, so we don't want anybody with drugs, creates more dynamic where people are out on the street because the only solution to their coping skills is to be where they can have what they absolutely feel they need. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty unhappy with what's going on in the city. We did try to have, at one point they were going to build an 18-story structure near me uh, to house marginal people. This is ridiculous. And and why, why is that ridiculous? Because... Are you going to go there with 18 floors of marginal people who have very poor social skills, who are having a hard time coping, and be able to work your way into a normal lifestyle? Highly unlikely. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I like you know, one of the things we've heard in some cases, there, there are people who um, are unhoused who need lots of support. Uh, but it sounds like there's some people who are unhoused who just need a place that's safe and secure and private to stay. So. Yeah, and it can't be safe and secure if you're 18 floors of units of, of marginal people. I live directly across the street from a shelter, and frequently I go out to hear people fighting and yelling at each other. And most of the time, no harm is done, and uh, I get in the car I'm going to go off in and I certainly don't go and confront them. Mm-hmm. I was walking around my block learning how to use my cane better, and I came across right at, at the corner an um, uh, office structure that's no longer being used, and uh, homeless people were uh, in a group above it, and for entertainment they were peeing on people who were attempting to walk down the street, yeah. which was funny. Um, uh, I, even I have a sense of humor about all this. Um, and I just walked further away off in the street area with my yeah. guide and was safe. But when you have large groups of people who have not coped well in life, 
and are forced to live in dire circumstances, you end up with some pretty crummy behavior going on around you. Okay. That's a fact. Valerie, thank you very much for calling. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. We're going to hear lots of different perspectives and people talking about their experiences. And uh, and we are hoping to hear many different voices here on Cross Country Checkup. Our number is 1-888-416-8333. You can also text us at 226-758-8924. Well, Kingston, Ontario is a city that applied for an injunction to remove an encampment last summer. That application was denied in November. Now the city's trying to figure out what to do next. And the mayor, Brian Patterson, joins us now. Hi, Mayor Patterson. Good afternoon. Uh, You've said you don't want an encampment in Bell Park to become a permanent fixture in your city. Um, Why, uh, what made you take that position? Well, I mean, you know, just even hearing from some of the other callers today, uh, this is such a complex and challenging issue. And, you know, I'll be the first to say that I think it's important that cities take a, a compassionate and, and empathetic approach uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, helping unhoused individuals, people that have been through a lot of trauma, uh, people that are facing very difficult situations. I, I think for us as a city, I think it's out of that place of compassion and empathy that is uh, really raised concerns for us with this this particular uh, established in, in Camden in the city. Uh, we've seen a lot of very serious public safety concerns. Um, you know, first and foremost, uh, some violent physical and sexual assaults of of people living in the encampment. And unfortunately, sometimes bad actors can take advantage of people in vulnerable situations. Uh, we've seen lots of concerns with fires, uh, fires that have uh, sometimes spread to tents. One situation where somebody was in a tent when a tent caught on fire. Uh, we've had hydro poles that have been cut down with live electrical wires. Uh, so lots of concerns, uh, obviously, for, for the surrounding neighborhood, but, but probably first and foremost for uh, some of the individuals that are in the encampment themselves. And so, you know, I, I say, you know, as mayor, that that's not a an environment that I think that I can endorse, just given those safety concerns. And so we've been trying to direct people to what we think are better, safer alternatives. But of course, it is it is complex and challenging. Yeah, so so far in the program, we was definitely we've heard about that complexity and those challenges, and they include uh, having the proper supports for people who need extra support that uh, you know maybe uh, dealing with mental illness issues or addiction. Uh, but also, we heard early on that that first and foremost, there needs to be just more housing. You know, that more housing will mean fewer people who are unhoused. What do you think is the most likely approach your city will be able to take? Well, I mean, I think there's a couple of things that we have found are important. So, you know, certainly over the last few years, you know, we've seen the population of unhoused individuals in our community double. So, and and I think that that's a number of other cities have probably seen something pretty similar to that. Uh, I think first and foremost, you know, is is obviously investing in new new shelter spaces. Uh, as a first step, obviously that's not a permanent solution, but if it's if it's indoors, if it's safer, if there's more security, and you know, ultimately even changing the way some of those shelter spaces operate, you know, the the idea of low barrier shelter spaces where, you know, we we can be flexible on on the rules and have agencies that you know have have people that are trauma informed that can that can work with different situations and people dealing with. Uh, different issues in their lives to be able to accommodate them. So I think that that's a that's a first step. 
but I do think that the, the larger solution is absolutely housing, and I think particularly supportive housing. So supportive housing where it's not just uh, a roof over, over someone's head, but it's, uh, it's an environment where you have trained uh, expert staff that are often on site, often 24-7, that can be there to, uh, to help address and, and help individuals work through, whether it's mental health issues or addiction issues or, or other, other trauma that they might have, uh, might have either led them to being homeless or something that they've suffered since becoming homeless. And so uh, I think that that's, that's definitely the solution when we've, we've seen some supportive housing projects uh, come to fruition here in, in Kingston uh, just in the last few years. Uh, we've got a supportive housing project now for, uh, for Indigenous residents and another for women uh, at, at risk and um, uh, others that are, that are rolling out. But it, it, it's expensive. It's challenging. And I will say this, it's not something that cities are equipped to deliver on all by themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's really like the formula for supportive housing really requires all three levels of government in a coordinated fashion. And uh, when when you get that coordination, we can do great things. But if you don't have that, then it really it can really handcuff uh, cities. We're here live with Mayor Brian Patterson of Kingston, Ontario. Our question today, are homeless encampments keeping people safe or putting them in danger? Our phone number is one 416 on cross-country checkup. Mayor, as I understand it, the judge's decision in November made it clear that your city can't prevent residents from camping overnight. Uh, however, again, according to the notes here, you're still considering the possibility of removing people who try to camp during the day. Uh, is that something that that may happen, and and how would that work? Well, I mean, definitely, you know, as a, as a city, we are trying to follow the guidance that the court has provided, which is basically, you know, and I think that the judge was really grappling with, you know, on the one hand, you know, the the right to shelter, um, but also trying to balance off with some of the public safety concerns, obviously that that we've seen that come from a a permanent entrenched encampment, you know, so, so I think that there's definitely a distinction between someone camping overnight somewhere versus, versus that entrenched permanent encampment that tends to attract, unfortunately, some of the bad actors and other issues uh, that, that we've seen. Uh, so, you know, we're ultimately just trying to come up with approach that again is, is empathetic. So first and foremost, um, if, you know, if, if someone can't camp, you know, in the daytime and in a certain location, then making sure that, um, that they can be offered an alternative. I think that that's very important. And so that's why as a city, we have invested in other shelter spaces and other places where people can go. Um, but I mean, ultimately, you know, we're trying to obviously modify our approach, be empathetic and compassionate, but also try to find where that balance is. And so if that means that, you know, according to the court that, you know, people can camp overnight, but not in the day, then obviously then we would work on approach that would um, that would correspond according to that direction. But again, uh, trying to make sure that we're connecting people to resources, to outreach services, uh, into to housing, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's a shelter space first and then to supportive housing and yeah. obviously just trying to maintain those connections with people. Mayor Patterson, thank you very much for giving us your time this afternoon. Thanks very much. Brian Patterson, the mayor of Kingston, Ontario, as we get towards the end of our hour on CBC News Network, though, of course, we will continue on CBC Radio. Let me try to squeeze in one more call before the top here. Patty DeLine is in Ottawa. Hi, Patty. I, I have to say that I'm lying here and I've got tears in my eyes and I'm sick with shame just listening to the last hour of what people are experiencing the homeless situation in Canada is 
just a, a, a blot on our whole country. And I, I wrote a letter to the editor of our local paper um, condemning them for not increasing our taxes. Our tax rate is only 2.5, um, whatever it is. And not one penny more was asked from a rich city like Ottawa. And we have thousands of homeless people here. There are some initiatives that have been taken that have housed people, but Mm -hmm. not nearly enough. And I had a mentor. I'm a retired social worker, and I had a mentor years ago who used to write letters to the Minister of, of Finance saying, I want my taxes raised to pay for X. Mm-hmm. Well, I want my taxes raised to pay to end homelessness in this country. Okay. It's just a disgrace. Well said, Patty. Thank you very much for giving us a call. Let me quickly okay. look at some of our social media reaction. Uh, Christine uh, Nuri here uh, via air check from Sault Ste. Marie. Our city council made it illegal to spend the night in our parks. The city has spent millions on offices for social services, millions on a market that's open once a week, millions on new stairs for City Hall that drops the ball on homelessness. Harriet Maynard via air check from Winnipeg says, I'd like to ask what alternatives we have to offer in place of homeless encampments. The camps are a place of desperation, not much different from refugee camps. And Jamie Smith in London, Ontario says, living in London my entire life allows me to truly understand the severity of the issue and the need for immediate action. It is a state of emergency with the winter weather conditions just around the corner and concerns of freezing or the top of the list of things you need to prepare for, yet there are no solutions in place. You are listening to Cross Country Checkup, and if you're watching us on CBC News Network, we say goodbye to you now as we continue our show live on radio and CBC Gem. Rosemary Barton Live is next on News Network. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, this is Hour 2 of Cross Country Checkup, live on CBC Radio. We have about 30 minutes left in our main topic. I'm Ian Hanna-Mansing. We're live in CBC Vancouver's Studio 10. Coming up in our AMA, is that yoga mat already collecting dust in your closet? Is that container spinach that you bought just going bad in your fridge? Today at our Ask Me Anything, we'll be tackling health, fitness, and how to keep those pesky New Year's resolutions. Chiwe Azeguara is a registered dietitian, a personal trainer. She'll be joining us to answer your questions about how to make sustainable health and lifestyle changes so that your New Year's resolutions last longer than just maybe a few days in January. Call us now if you're looking to take part in that part of the conversation. As I say, if you have questions about how to turn resolutions into long-term habits, we have an expert who can provide answers. 1-888-416-8333. You can text questions as well. That number is 226-758-8924. And if you're a regular 
listener of this program, you know you can also use those numbers on our main topic for the next half hour. Throughout the show, we've asked listeners how their community has responded to homelessness and encampments. Let's turn now to Kitchener, Ontario, for one approach, which goes by the name A Better Tent City. It's a community of 42 tiny home shelters. So just imagine an 8 by 10 foot insulated cabin, and these cabins are lined up in rows. It's currently housing about 50 people with health care and addiction services on site. The project uh, funded by community donations and is on land owned by the city and the school board. And to talk more about the initiative, Jeff Wilmer is here with us. He's the co-founder and board chair of A Better Tent City and a former city employee who's now retired. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Ian. So we've been talking uh, today about how municipalities and other levels of government uh, would like to remove homeless encampments altogether, depending on the community. Uh, How did you get the city of Waterloo on board with this idea? So so it's actually the city of Kitchener and the region of Waterloo that that are are on board with it now. Um, It was a gradual process. We actually started the initiative without asking anybody's permission. So it was a little bit of a of a of a rebellious approach by our my co-founder Ron Doyle, um, and and uh, but we've it was Ron's vision really that that people should not be living rough unhoused in a in a community like Kitchener Waterloo, and uh, he had the vision for a, a community of tiny homes. So we we started it on industrial property that Ron Doyle owned, and then we sought permission from the city to continue there. And so, where did the funding come from? The funding was entirely by community donations. Uh, wow. It was uh, uh, people donated cash, people donated materials, people uh, volunteers donated their their skill sets. So it was it was built really entirely with with community funding and community skills. And what about the people who found shelter in a better tent city? What are they saying? They are immensely relieved. They're in a much more stable place than they were when they were living rough. Um, and, and some of them would say they would probably be dead now if it weren't for the community that they have experienced uh, and become part of at A Better Tent City. Hmm. We're here speaking live with Jeff Wilmer, co-founder of A Better Tent City. Our question today on Cross Country Checkup, are homeless encampments keeping people safe or putting them in danger? How is your community dealing with homelessness? Call us at 1-888-416-8333 or go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Uh, Jeff, uh, we've been talking about homeless encampments in Edmonton that are being dismantled. Police have pointed to organized crime infiltrating those tent cities. Uh, has that been an issue at all at, at a better tent city, the, the community that, that you've helped establish? It really hasn't been. Life is not perfect at a better tent city, but for the most part, uh, we have never had to to uh, engage security forces to, to help police the, the community. The residents actually look after security themselves. Um, and uh, they, they've learned how to be respectful neighbors for the community that they live in and uh, good neighbors for each other. So so we really haven't had a lot of problems with uh, with violence and crime. Um, but, you know, life on the street is rough and these are people who are transitioning from living rough, we hope, to transitioning to, to permanent housing. We don't see ourselves as a permanent solution, but a good interim solution. And what would you say to people in other parts of the country who are intrigued by what you've managed, you and others have managed to achieve here and are wondering, well, maybe this is something we should do. 
Yeah, I, I would say definitely pursue it to do it and don't don't waste time. This there's uh, this is a crisis. There's urgency to it. Um, this is not the solution for everybody, but it's a very good solution for many people. And it's inexpensive to build, quick to build, and it works. Um, the region of Waterloo now has essentially replicated our idea at a, at a second community here in uh, at the outskirts of Waterloo. It looks a lot like ours. 50 tiny homes, shared facilities for uh, toilets, showers, laundry, washrooms, and so on. Um, and they're they're committed to doing another one. City of Peterborough has also copied the idea. So I think municipalities are are catching on that this is a good interim solution. And how long do people tend to to stay there? Uh, it varies quite a bit. Some have been residents of a better tent city since we started uh, almost four years ago now. Um, others have moved on to to uh, affordable housing and uh, and supportive housing. Um, so it does vary, um, but people are welcome to be there as long as they need to be there. It's it's their home. It's really not a shelter. It's housing. Sounds intriguing, and congratulations on your success, Jeff. Thank you very much, Ian. Jeff Wilmer, co-founder and board chair of A Better Tent City in Kitchener. All right, let's go to the phones once again, and Iola Bracken is in Iqaluit. Hi, Iola. Hello, I'm calling from Iqaluit, Nunavut. Yes, and often I know when we uh, speak to somebody in Nunavut, first of all, thank you very much for calling us. Uh, often just for the technology reasons, there's a bit of a delay along the phone line. Um, how, how is your community dealing with homelessness? Well, Iqaluit, Nunavut, Iqaluit's the capital of Nunavut, and the only housing seems to be going up in Iqaluit. The smaller communities are getting nothing. Uh, we um, have two mines, hmm. active mines in Nunavut, a gold mine, an iron ore mine. Two active mines making billions of dollars. All these money going to outsiders. Iqaluit has two female homeless shelters, one male homeless shelter. And I should just say to people I'm who are listening, but, so but, but, but also, Iola, I'll say this as well to you. It's always a bit challenging uh, to be on the phone when there's a delay like this. So um, I can hear you, and I just don't want to jump in because then we might get into this loop of each of us interrupting the other. So so I'll just ask this question and, and will not interrupt, but you should know that, that I can hear you loud and clear, Iola. Um, tell, describe for us what the challenge is for people who are unhoused, who are experiencing homelessness in a calorie. In the only way to get housing in a calorie is if you're a staff member from down south or from somewhere else.
All right. Um, well, thank you very much, Iola. I apologize for the uh, the awkward pauses in the conversation, but like I say, uh, it has to do with the, just the way that uh, when you connect by phone with Iqaluit, there is a delay and it, it just makes uh, having a conversation on the phone a little bit more difficult. But I do appreciate you uh, giving us the call and uh, and and uh, describing for us the challenges in in your community. Uh, let's go to Peace River, Alberta. Sonia Ray is is calling. Hi, Sonia. Hello. Good afternoon. My name is Sonia Ray. Hi. And good and afternoon. I, yeah. Good afternoon. Now I, I see in the notes here that you have been in a shelter in Edmonton. What was that like? I have been in a shelter in Edmonton during the COVID time, COVID time, and unfortunately I was stuck there because uh, everything was shut down during that time. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, it's not safe to stay in a shelter uh, be- because uh, some weapons can come in, everything's not detected or is watched out for, and it's kind of rough. Mm-hmm. And and it's kind of cold in there. That's not. It's cold. All shelters are cold. There's not enough blankets, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, washing wash shower curtains and rod shower rods. They come. They they take them away for what I don't know for outside yeah. use. I guess the people that go in. Sonia, anyway, how, how did you end up getting out of the shelter? Where did you go next? I got help with a social worker, and, uh, and uh, when COVID was over, uh, I, I, got a, I got an apartment. That's great. So I didn't, I didn't have any rental problem before, so I didn't have any problem getting into an apartment in Edmonton. So... Um, Originally, I came from Yellowknob. I had problems over there with um, bullying and harassing, so I had to get out mentally mm-hmm. because of the um, drug alcohol problems in the apartment I was living in. Mm-hmm. So, as far as I as uh, about the tent encampment, it's not. It's just not safe to go into the, a shelter because sometimes it can be very cold. And new weapons can come in, and people are very rough. There's all kinds of people, mental people, and like that. Mm-hmm. And what I would like the the, the, the people across Canada is just uh, what they should build. Build is a uh, a, a small cabins like um, Christmas Village in a certain area where. Um, wherever there's space, mm-hmm. small little cabins for homeless people, people that need a place to live. Yeah. Like maybe one bedroom. And in a little village, they can build a, across the street there, they can build a, a shower place, a coffee shop, or a little community place where they can meet and like that. Yeah. And in some place in the village, they can build a cop shop, like for security. Yes. Like that. Yeah. And you know what? Where are they going to get the money from there? It says, I would, I would, I would, um, 
I would donate money for for that kind of uh, shelter, yep. a, a home for these this kind of people. That way, they're by themselves. They have a place to stay. It's warm in there. Maybe they can put a wood stove in there. Yep. Sonia, thank you very much for calling. And you know what's interesting is your call ties together uh, quite a few points that we've heard up until now, starting with making housing available, you know, which is something we heard very early on. Uh, this idea of a community of small places to stay, which kind of seems to echo the theme of a better tent city in Kitchener, the idea of being willing to pay for it. We heard from the woman in Ottawa who said she actually was demanding of her government that she could pay more in taxes to support people uh, to get housing, to get them out of shelters. And then your point uh, about how tough it was and you felt unsafe in a shelter. So uh, yeah, interesting to hear those uh, points. We have about 15 minutes left in our main topic here on Cross Country Checkup. Are homeless encampments keeping people safe or putting them in danger? How is your community dealing with homelessness? At the bottom of the hour, we're going to change topics entirely. Think of the AMA as a completely different program because in a lot of ways it is. We bring an expert in this time around. It's a personal trainer who is also a registered dietitian and it's about New Year's resolutions uh, that deal with health and, uh, and, you know, exercise and diet and how you could try to stay on those past January 2nd. Uh, and so the same number works for both talking about our main topic uh, for the next 15 minutes and also the AMA, one 416 8333 Text us at 226-758-8924 or connect via uh, cbc.ca aircheck. Florence Stratton works for a homeless shelter in Regina, and she joins us now on the phone. Hi, Florence. Hi there, Ian. Um, I don't work for a homeless shelter, but I volunteered at the encampment in front of City Hall in Regina oh, okay. over, over June and July. All right. And it definitely kept people safe. Uh, Regina's policy, on the other hand, is to chase unhoused people from one encampment to another. And really, where do city officials expect them to go. I'm reminded of Scrooge's words in A Christmas Carol written over 150 years ago, quote, let them die and reduce the surplus population. Mm. That seems to be the attitude of Regina city officials. So, so what was it like in the encampment that you volunteered at? It was wonderful. It was, it became a community. We all worked to keep each other safe. I mean, I'm in my 80s. Everybody helped me. They walked me to the bus at the end of the night. Let me carry your bags, Florence. And this is both other volunteers and uh, people who were living in tents, you know, the unhoused people. It was just fabulous. The community was was formed, and you know, the the bonds are still strong. But the police came in and took down the encampment. Hmm. It's it's terrific to hear about the sense of community. What about what we've heard, not about the Regina encampment, but uh, encampments in other places? Um, we've heard about, you know, stories of some people preying on, on the vulnerable in encampments and, uh, you know, the criminal element and that sort of thing. Was that not an issue at all? Well, if it was an issue, the volunteers made sure it didn't be, you know, it didn't grow. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had people there. 24-7. And it was all volunteers, mainly young people. Um, we just, you know, we, we did our best to keep people safe, and people kept us safe, too. I mean, I get really tired, too, of hearing 
you know, oh, I'm so afraid of the encampment. I'm so afraid of the unhoused people. I mean, it's we should be afraid for the unhoused people. They're out there dying. Yes. Of the cold, of, of poverty, of, you know, and I don't know. I mean, what Canada's a rich country. Regina's a rich city. How do we how do we do this? What kind of people are we? And so did you you said the the uh, encampment that you volunteered at was dismantled? The police came in at the end of July. Eleven of us chose to be arrested in our shock and horror at what was going on. But they yeah, they took it down. They destroyed, you know, they trashed everybody's possessions, traced everybody away. Then another encampment popped up in a field. The city came and took it down. Now people are scattered in alleys and who knows where. And, and you know, it's winter in, it's winter in Regina. Mm-hmm. And we have one small warming, overnight warming center. That's all anybody has set up. A group of us have been trying to get a warming center. Another one set up in the downtown area. No luck so far. Not that warming centers or encampments are the solution. We need permanent housing with supports if necessary, as some of your other guests have said. Yeah. Florence, thank you very much for calling. Yeah, thank you so much, Ian. All right. From Regina, we'll go to Barry now. And Franco Iannuzzi has called us. Hi, Franco. Hi, how are you? Uh, I'm good. Describe for us your situation. Uh, but mine is a, it's a little lengthy, and I say that because uh, it's been a few months and there's more to it than just not being able to pay the rent, which has been extreme in the last months and the last couple of years for most people. Yeah, uh, but but let's let let let's start let, let's start with this, Franco. I'm just looking at the notes here, and it says you're you're staying. Is this right? You're staying at your son's house tonight, but you're you're yeah, not sure. He's actually with me right now. He's 13 years old, and I really questions whether he should hear any of this. But I think it's time. He's he's 13. In most cultures, he'd be a man now. Uh, <laughs> and and so, where are you going to be staying tomorrow? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm very active. I'm very proactive. I have been uh, my whole life. I'm a half a century old. I'm not a little boy. I've got 27 years of contributions in and uh, a better part of the last decade plus. I've been a single father uh, to his older sisters uh, who I chased through six different cities and saw four different jails before I got custody of. So I'm not a stranger to bureaucracy and hard work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So on that note, uh, where am I going to be staying tomorrow? I'm not sure. I have a list of places I've contacted and with no success. Now you've stayed in shelters recently, I think, right? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. Uh, unfortunately, my bed was given away over the holidays where I came to visit Gabriel. They allowed me two-day leave uh, from York Region, which is where I've been staying for the better part of three years, uh, to go and visit uh, with Gabriel and my girls who were coming home from university, both engineering students that I have the pride of and say I helped raise all by myself until university. Um and they marked me down as absent the day I left for two days. So by the time I got back, they had to give my bed away, thinking that I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, nighttime staff, uh, which has happened a lot of in the last little bit that I've noticed changes and growth with, with the demand in, in shelters, is that your regular support staff has now become 
people working and leading these shelters. And unfortunately, the care and concern that was put in from original founders is not there anymore. Mm-hmm. All right, Franco. Well, I'm sorry to hear that your uh, housing situation is so precarious. I, I, I wish you luck. Thank you. All right. Let's take a look at uh, some of our online uh, comments. Uh, Dave Meller contacted us via AirCheck. He's in White Rock, British Columbia. I'm very concerned about the housing situation. I'm 59 years old and I don't think that I'll be able to afford to rent or anything when I retire. Everyone deserves a home. At the very least, the government needs to allow people to live in camps that are safe. Kathy Crow texted us. She's in Toronto. One of the biggest failures in the pandemic was the inaction by governments on this issue, especially as homelessness exploded in the pandemic. We need a bigger effort to house people. It didn't happen and now we're paying for it. And Austin texting us from Calgary says, I'm a student who's on the verge of homelessness. I feel those in government of all levels ignored the homeless and the low income. There's no real sympathy for the homeless. If a city wants to remove a homeless encampment, they must provide a place to the people who they want to displace. Dakota Kelm is in Kamloops, British Columbia. Hi, Dakota. Hi, how are you? Good. So you volunteer at a local Métis church and, and help people who uh, are unhoused? So I, um, I'm on the board of directors for my local Métis Charter community here in Kamloops, Two Rivers, yeah. and I get to uh, work with lots of, I get to work with lots of youth, um, both those who have houses and those who are in more vulnerable positions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so how do you feel about uh, the way that people who are unhoused are, are dealt with in your community? I think that they're uh, treated very poorly. I've seen no real positive sentiment by many of the uh, city councillors to really support efforts to um, not even necessarily better house homeless people, but um, overall just like negative sentiments about homelessness. Uh, we have recently <clears throat> supported uh, removing homeless people from our public parks and places because they're using substances which they need to use, and mm-hmm. yet there's things supporting that. and. Uh, there have also been very limited action towards actually supporting homeless people in our community. And instead, our uh, mayor, Reese Hamer Jackson, has actually said during his election campaign that he wanted to put uh, homeless people on buses and get them out of Kamloops. Hmm. What would you like to see? I think that what we need to do, first of all, is take it from the ground and go to the grassroots and realize that uh, poverty and homelessness isn't just an issue of a lack of money, but it's an issue of racism and intergenerational discrimination. My family, we were very nearly homeless. We were relying on the food bank. We were just barely able to scrape by. Um, single mother, uh, living with my grandmother as well. And all three of us were almost homeless because of that. And I think that we need to realize that if you can't afford a home, a lot of people are just barely able to afford that, right? And if you can't afford a home, there's nowhere to go other than these large encampments. And I think that we need to, first of all, be removing hostile architecture that prevents people from sleeping on park benches or in these other locations where they otherwise might be sleeping on the ground, getting wet and getting sick. Mm-hmm. And then we also need to make sure that homeless people can have a permanent mailing address that if they need government documents to get like a birth certificate um, or a driver's license or whatever, they actually have a place to get that. Because without a birth certificate or without ID, you can't get a bank account, you can't get a house, you can't get many of these essential services to actually um, get up and get ahead. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, Dakota, thank you very much for calling. Appreciate your, your perspective. We're at that time of the program. We're about six minutes away from the Ask Me Anything, which is about New Year's resolutions. And we'll have an expert in to answer your questions about that. one 416 But before then, I think I can get two more calls in. Uh, let's go to CJ Martin, who's in Oakville, Ontario. Hi, CJ. Hello, how are you? Good. I see uh, in the notes here that your, your brother was homeless uh, for years and, and in 2020 moved into your home. Tell us about that. Yes, that is the case. Um, he has mental health and addiction problems, and he has been in and out of shelter systems and living in um, low, very basic boarding houses where there was a lot of uh, rough behavior. Hmm. Um, and he has told me that he slept in stairwells and things like that over the years. And in 2020, he was, uh, it was the pandemic, it was August. He was at the point where his back was disintegrating from the lifestyle, lack of nutrition. He wasn't eating. He was just drinking beer. He was pretty much on death's doorstep Mm. and literally like he collapsed in my hands and fell to the floor and needed to be taken to the hospital. And I got them to keep him in the hospital and then transferred him to my home because he could not survive in the shelter system because the shelter kicks you out after two weeks. And then you have to go into the out of the cold program where it's church basement to church basement, you know, taking buses around the city, being having to be out in the elements for 11 hours until the next church basement opens up. And I knew that he would die on the street. So I brought him into my home. And um, the first year was a lot, a lot of physical recovery. He was lucky to get access to... Um, pain, uh, chronic pain injections that he needed. He got access to uh, bone rebuilding medication that he needed. He got access to just peace and quiet. When he first arrived, he couldn't follow a TV show. He could only watch the videos that are meant for cats, where he'd just watch the squirrels bounce around and things like that. Like he's mm. just, it was just everything about him was depleted. Yeah. But flash forward three years, and actually, you can flash forward less than that. He's been going to the local gym for the last. Three, like three times a week for the last year. He calls his own wheelchair accessible cab. He uses his walker. He goes to the cab. He takes a, goes to the gym, comes back by himself. He has joined a church group. When my dad goes into the hospital, because my dad is in his 80s, he, my brother goes over and stays with my mother to give her some support and somebody in the house for her. So he's been able to take back having a role in his family and in his community and developing natural relationships. And um, he's started learning about brain health and he started learning about probiotics and omega-3 oils and things that are really helping him with some of his mental health issues in addition to the medications that he yeah. takes. It, it so, is, it, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead and ask a question. I was just going to say it's, it, it's, it, it's actually, you know, it's, it's, the story started bleakly, but is inspiring in many ways. But, but here's the thing, CJ, like mm-hmm. you, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have to have a, a loving, supportive sister to have that kind of turnaround in your life, right? Like other people obviously deserve that opportunity as well, but presumably they're not going to get it unless they have somebody like you in their lives. And uh, to be honest, myself, I have a special background that I worked in disability services for a while, so I have a different perspective than a lot of people. I see more possibilities. I think about ways to access service systems. I, you know, I have a, you know, I have a, a little bit of unique things to bring to the table. But my, my insight gathered from all of this is, like, nobody in my family believed it was possible to save them either, for that matter. They're like, oh, you know, like, 
they had just gotten used to him spiraling downwards and didn't think there was any way of bringing him up. But because mm-hmm. of my uh, different um, perspective, I believed it was possible, and I turned out to be right. Yeah, my, okay. Yeah. My, I'd just like to say that yes. my, my key insight is that I don't think we need to look at homeless encampments as being build a better homeless encampment that's little houses. We need to go and t- see what led each individual person to be in that encampment and surround them in a circle of support that includes social workers and a stronger community on an individual basis to get each person back to where they want to be in their life. Yes. It, yeah. and, and it needs to be individualized, and that's where the money needs to be, solving the problems of each individual and what led them to the place that they are. And maybe it's not a bunch of individual sisters like me, but you know, services that are surrounding each individual is what's required, in my opinion. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty persuasive uh, point of view, CJ. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Let's go to one last call. Ryan O'Hagan is in London, Ontario. Hi, Ryan. Hi there. Um, I'm sorry to say I only have a couple of minutes, but but hopefully we can we can at least squeeze some content into those two minutes. Uh, how, how do you feel about how your community is dealing with homelessness? Yeah, um, so I'm in London, and, and I have been a huge supporter of the current plan that London's putting in place. Um, I, I don't know if it's the plan, but it seems to be the one that is uh, most agreed upon with experts in our area, our region. Um, so, so our plan is to have smaller shelters uh, that serve as, as hubs for um, individual unhoused groups, uh, and then support them on a smaller basis while focusing on the most uh, acutely in need people on the streets. So uh, while traditional focus has been like, let's get all 2,000 people off the streets right now and help them all with some kind of help, London's taking more of a, let's take the 600 that are the most at risk uh, and and focus on how do we help them and how did that alleviate some of the stresses on other parts of our systems like ambulatory care or uh, police response times. Mm -hmm. So the the thing that I, the thing that made me call in, um, this is my first time listening to this show, was a comment was made earlier by, by someone about um, concerns about a larger complex for people who were um, yes. unhoused. Yep. Uh, and, and my thing is, it doesn't matter what solution people come up with. Um, there will be a group of people somewhere, uh, and I'm not saying this is that caller, that will have inherent problems with addressing this, this problem. Mm-hmm. They will look at this and they will say, this is a... This is uh, um, something that happened out of your own circumstances. You did this. Many people believe that. And those people can be quite loud uh, and they can be quite scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and quite often, it doesn't matter what your solution is. Because in London, where we have this plan to build up to 15 smaller hubs, uh, we have the exact opposite criticism uh, from Ottawa. We have people saying, well, why aren't they all just in one spot downtown? Yeah. Uh, right? So it, it, it seems to me whether you look at the national housing strategy or, or individual cities or what's happening in Kingston or Edmonton, it, it doesn't matter what solutions put in place. People are going to complain. They're not, yeah. it's, it's not going to be what they want. Um, and yeah. at the end of the day, we have thousands of people dying a year yeah. from homelessness. You, you know, Ryan, I need to, I need to cut us off oh, yeah. there. You just, uh, I, I appreciate your call. Next time, call us earlier, okay? <laughs> I was trying to get through okay. the whole time. All right. <laughs> 
All right. Uh, no, I understand that. Uh, listen, I, I'm sorry that uh, we're going to cut it short, but we're encroaching on the next portion of the program. And uh, and so why don't we leave it there? But your point obviously is uh, it, it was clearly made, right? And it's a good one. And that is that there will always be people who will take issue with uh, with the approach. It's a complex problem. Uh, there's no easy solution. Um, but I think we got lots of insights over the last 90 minutes, including from people who have experienced homelessness and of those, some who have been in encampments, some of the more, most fascinating calls of all. So um, thank you very much, all the people who called in. And now it's time for Ask Me Anything on health, fitness and New Year's resolutions. New year, new me, right? So we try and keep a resolution. I always wished for abs for my New Year's resolution. Never came across that. Uh, I lost weight for three weeks and I got tired of the diet and then I started eating cookies and uh, candy again. 23% of people quit their resolutions by the end of the first week of January. They sign up to dry January, they see if they can do it. So we are a week into the new year. How are your New Year's resolutions going? Many of us entered 2024 with the hope of improving our health, well-being and fitness. But making big changes is never easy. So today we're going to get advice from an expert on how to make long-term sustainable changes. Chiwe Asaguara is a personal trainer and a registered dietitian. She's here live to take your calls, to answer questions, to offer some advice, to do everything except judge you. She will not judge you. You can ask her pretty well anything on this topic. Our number is 1-888-416-8333 or you can text us at 226-758-8924. I know this is a big change from the topic that we dealt with in the first 90 minutes so we can sort of shift our focus now and as you heard at the end of our first 90 minutes, there are always a lot of people the call towards the end. So maybe try to get your calls in early on this topic so you'll have a little bit more time with our expert, Chi Wei. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm kind of curious in your line of work, I certainly know having gone to various gyms over the years that in January you see people you've never seen before and they seem so excited and motivated and then by mid-February you never see them again. So as a registered dietitian and a trainer, do things get busier for you in January? Definitely. Uh, people are excited, as you said, they're motivated. Uh, I think some of that too is coming off of the holiday season. So maybe having a really joyful time with friends and family that included um, food and drink and maybe taking some time away from movement. So uh, people are excited in the new year to kind of get into some movement and nutrition changes. Our number is one 416 You can also connect at cbc.ca slash Aircheck. Have you seen Chiway over the years a New Year's resolution actually turn into a significant lifestyle change for any of your clients? For my clients, yes, <laughs> because we go through a very specific um, method um, and we take it beyond a New Year's resolution. So often uh, New Year's resolutions are, um, there's that New Year's motivation and excitement, um, but there needs to be some things that go along with that to make it go beyond January or even February. Mm-hmm. You know, weight is is a is a tricky one, right? Because a lot of us uh, would like to weigh less than we do, and then the holidays are kind of 
everything centers around food and drink. Like you, you just can't escape it. And if you have a sweet tooth, and I have a sweet tooth, uh, it's just like everywhere there's chocolate. So I'm probably like a lot of people where I kind of think, okay, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll eat a little bit more of bad stuff during the holidays. Uh, and even as recently as last Sunday, December 31st, I think, hey, you know what? January 1st is a Monday. What a perfect time to turn things around. Um, but now we're January 7th and, and it's like, you know, all my resolve has melted away. So, so let's start with that. What would you say to somebody who walks into your office and said, okay, I, I've, I've got to lose that 20 pounds that I've been trying to lose unsuccessfully. Maybe it's even 25 pounds now after the way December went. What would you say to that hypothetical person who's not me? <laughs> okay, what I would say, I, I'd have a few questions. So one, I would like to have an understanding of um, what the connection is to the weight loss goal, because weight can be part of someone's health goal. But we also want to think beyond that, especially if there's weight gain over the last uh, few weeks of holidays. A lot of that's likely uh, water weight. You'd it's hard to gain that much body fat in that short period of time. So helping them kind of uh, not have so much stress or anxiety about that most recent weight gain, if that's what's been happening, but adding to that goal of weight loss. So what else are we looking at? Are we looking at improving energy, um, digestion? Uh, what kind of other health goals are we adding? But then also to um, how are we going to go about it? So creating a plan of action that can help that person achieve that weight loss goal, as well as any other health goals that they have. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you're listening right now, here's your opportunity to talk to someone who is a registered dietitian, who's a personal trainer for advice on how to keep uh, New Year's resolutions or more broadly, just to, to kind of turn a corner in terms of health and, and fitness. And our number is one 888 You know, Chiwei, one thing I think I've heard over the years from uh, other registered dietitians is, I mean, there's just so many myths when it comes to eating, but but one of them, I guess this isn't a myth, it's just kind of a, a misunderstanding, is that f for a lot of people, it, weight was put on over a long period of time, but then the people want to take that weight off in a really short period of time. You must have run into this. Definitely. Um, so a lot of times the conversation is setting realistic expectations, which is really beneficial for everybody, for the dietitian or fitness professional that's working with you and for you as the person who has a weight loss goal. Um, because then you're not feeling frustrated with yourself if you have an expectation of losing 10, 20, 30 or 50 pounds within a few weeks or a month or so, um, then you're not putting that um, negative pressure on yourself or feeling badly that that's not happening. And exactly as you said, Things take time in both directions. So if it's been years that health changes have been occurring, that someone is now ready to look at, giving yourself around the same time frame to be able to see some changes. Some more noticeable changes will happen sooner than that. But if we're looking at long-term sustainable change, if it's weight loss or anything else, giving yourself a good amount of time to achieve it. And then the next step is maintaining it. Are, are there any myths or misunderstandings that uh, seem to be cropping up a lot lately in your practice that you'd like to mention, maybe to let people know this is not the way to go? Well, I think the main thing is um, 
people are really kind of shopping around for a specific diet that might be most successful for weight loss or any type of health goal. But really, the most important thing is adding in nutritional and exercise behaviors that are consistent. So I definitely don't recommend things like, um, you know, cutting out food groups or going extremely low carb or even cutting out fat. There's healthy fats that we want to include. Those are types of extreme ways of changing nutrition that can be really difficult to maintain long term. Whenever anyone asks, me, well, what's the best diet? What's the perfect way that I should be eating? It always is, well, what can you do for the rest of your life? What way of eating and moving can you do from now until forever? Because if it's not, then you're always coming back to what I call the restart. And then the next January 1st, you're having the same conversation about what's the perfect diet for me to approach this time when in reality, it's habits and behaviors that you add in daily, weekly, monthly, that just become your lifestyle that support your health goals. I, I love that advice. And I should say, you know, to people who don't know, the 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 being a registered dietitian is actually a really significant thing, right? That uh, it, it comes with, you know, an academic standard. It comes with training. There are a lot of people out there who claim to understand how to eat better, but they're not registered dietitians. So, um, I, yeah, I've, I've over the years as a journalist interviewed quite a few of your colleagues and it's always been impressive. And what you just said in terms of, uh, you know, long-term, not even habits, right? Just long-term approach to to eating healthy certainly sounds very sensible. 1-888-416-8333 is our number. (laughs) There are three three threes there. You think I'd know that by now. 1-888-416-8333. And uh, here's your chance to ask questions about fitness and diet and other ways to be healthier in 2024. Catherine Munn is here in Vancouver. She's calling in. Hi, Catherine. Hello. And uh, what uh, I can hear you loud and clear. What's your question for Chiwe? Well, um, okay, so I've had a very active life, most, mostly manual jobs, landscaping, tree planting, now a nurse's aide for 12 years. So at 63, um, I was in very good shape, but I'm now feeling the effects of a lifetime of labor, and I'm finding it very hard to go to the gym because I have arthritis in my knees, in my hip, and in my feet, my left foot. So how do I exercise when I feel pain when I exercise? That is a, swimming, do swim. <laughs> that is a fantastic question, and I'll bet you Chiwe's got uh, some advice. But Catherine, stay on the line in case uh, you have a follow-up. Okay. Chiwe? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you so much. So sometimes we need to change the way that we move our body um, to adjust for things like you're talking about. So for joint pain or arthritis, we can kind of look at, well, what is the option for exercise? So taking a weight impact will be really helpful. So I don't know if you enjoy the pool, but something like swimming or water aerobics might be um, more enjoyable, as well as if you're doing cardiovascular work in the gym, something like the elliptical or a bike might be more comfortable for you because there's not that step impact every time you um, are moving. Those types of cardio equipment are more buoyant um, and they'll help with that um, body pain. And then the recovery piece, so really adequate nutrition. So when we're looking at arthritis, um, there can be inflammation with that. So really good hydration, um, looking at taking um, omega-3s or healthy fats through the diet. So eating lots of uh, nuts and seeds, if that's um, okay for your nutritional needs in regards to any types of allergies. Um, Eating fatty fish two times per week um, can be some things that you look at as well. And Catherine, any follow-up questions? So Zumbia, is that the question? Uh, Zumba, what do they call it? Zumba. I don't want to say that. It sounds like it, 
if you like it, <laughs> but if I would assess your pain, if you're doing Zumba and if you're in a lot of pain afterwards, then okay, look, how can we adjust it? Maybe you don't do a 60 minute, maybe you do a 30 minute, maybe you speak to the instructor and ask, are there some modifications that you can offer me that are less impact that can help um, with my with my needs or even the frequency of it? Maybe if it's something that you're really enjoying, which is extremely important for being consistent with exercise, enjoying what you're doing, look at how often you're doing it throughout the week and adding in other things. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and you know, Chiwe, there was a time when, was it Jane Fonda who said this? Somebody talked about no pain, no gain. But I feel like these days in the fitness world, the advice is really pain is a warning, right? Like if you have Absolutely. pain, you need to stay away from it or at least try to work around it, right? Yes. Pain is your body telling you something. Pain is your body wanting you to pay attention to something. So that's great that you're doing that. Um, and then looking for some alternatives. And I feel like there are lots of ways in the gym, but again, you're the expert on this where sometimes just minor modifications on an exercise can make a huge difference in terms of uh, avoiding pain and obviously avoiding putting stresses on the part of your body that, that is hurting. Absolutely. So that is a nice option to have someone have their eyes on you. So if, um, you know, if you're able to have a personal trainer watch you do some movement, um, because sometimes it's just incorrect form that might have led to an injury or causing pain, or maybe the load, so the amount of weight that's being pushed or pulled is not correct, or it's too much for where you're starting from. So those small adjustments can definitely be helpful. And then when you're continuing from there, you're, you're doing it in a way that's not going to keep that pain from occurring. Chiwe Asaguara is a personal trainer and a registered dietitian in Winnipeg, and she's with us for the next 15 minutes to answer your questions about both fitness and diet as we start a new year, and many of us trying to be healthier in 2024 than we were in 2023. David Bursick is in Ottawa. Hi, David. Hi there. How you doing? Good. What, uh, what, what question do you have for Chiwe? Um couple of things right now. Okay, I, during, during, I'm 68, okay, during COVID... I went from about 245 down to about 195. I'm just tipping under 200 now. I did it pretty much through modified, like dirty keto. I allowed up to about 50 grams of carbs a day, um, a lot of natural fats. I've been a natural fat person, like no processed fats for probably 30 years. Um, I'm plateaued out right now. I've started doing physio, uh, so I've got, you know, I've got, much better flexibility and movement that I lost because of the weight gain. Um, and I'm starting back into the gym. I'm doing a, like what's a 50, 50, 50 routine, like every day, 50 pushups, 50 squats, um, and, uh, and 50 crunches, but I'm plateaued. I'm plateaued from 195 and 200. I have been for probably five or six months. How do I, how do I kickstart that? Cause I, my plan is to get down to in my probably high one sixties, um, as a, as a goal for health and mobility and everything else. This is such a fantastic situation. Uh, a question, Chiwe, it almost sounds like an exam question. Uh, David, stay on the line because I think sure. that Chiwe may have some questions for you and, uh, mm -hmm. go ahead and, and, uh, deal with David. Sure. So, um, what is, so you're doing the 50 pushups, um, and have you added anything to that or you're still consistent with that? And how long have you been doing that for? Oh my God, I've been doing that all through COVID. You know, I've still I've still got a dad stomach, but um, I was in the gym um, training with my with my 38 year old son who went boom boom against my stomach, going, "There's a six pack under there. Like, <laughs> hurry up, start losing weight." Oh yeah, that's fantastic. 
Yeah, so it's like I've, I've been adding to it, and now with my physio, I'm doing heel drops. I'm doing weighted heel drops. Um, I'm doing stair, like gentle stair work up and down. Like I lost my ability to walk stairs for, you know, any kind of speed for probably three years. And it's back now to where I can actually, you know, follow my 18 year old running up and down stairs. I'm, wow. I'm a very old, I'm a very old single dad as well. So I got to keep up. <laughs> So first I'd say, you know, spending some time really um, kind of highlighting the things that are going really well, um, because that's pretty impressive. Um, but also to maybe looking at adding in some uh, resistance training. I don't know if you're uh, doing that or open to doing that, but things like... Yeah, nightly, um, nightly, with... nightly, up to, up to, up okay. to 50 pound, up to 50 pound bands for, um, for basically knees, feet, and, and also for shoulder, for light shoulder work for the, for the small connective tissue. Okay, and is there an injury that you're working around? Because you mentioned physio. No, um, I. What happened was I lost so much muscle mass because I wasn't exercising while I was doing keto. Um, so I'm losing all this weight, but again, my age, I'm losing muscle at almost as fast a rate as fat. So I lost a lot of muscle tone um, just through sloth, and um, so I was having issues with heel pain, plantar fasciitis. Um, I was in a band like, eight years ago, I was in a rock band. I jumped on stage and I blew my Achilles out on my right side wow. and my knee. So it was like a three-year three year recovery. So I went, I, went from, I went from 58 and 15% body fat to, you know, 245 and chicken fat. So we, we've got, uh, as you can imagine, a bunch of other calls, David. So, but, but let me just say this. Uh, so here, here you're a guy that's been so active. You're doing all this exercise. You're being very thoughtful about it, very diligent. Uh, you obviously dieted uh, to bring your weight down. But your original question was about how your weight has plateaued and you'd like to lose a bit more. And, and Chiwe, I wonder if David is in a situation now where it, it's, it has to do with food coming in in terms of, uh, you know, getting to that next level he'd like to get to in terms of weight. Yeah, that's that's definitely correct. So when I'm hearing you talk, what I'm two things that are coming to my mind are nutrition. So um, you know, protein, having enough protein coming in because if you're wanting to build back up your muscle, protein and then resistance training are going to be kind of best friends here. And I ask about weight training, resistance training, uh, but more of compound movement. So things like bench is great, but deadlift, uh, also things like squatting, using your large muscle groups, doing back exercises, lower body exercises, Paired with that nutrition, which will definitely be protein, but also carbohydrates. So the body's preferred source of fuel for most people is carbohydrate, especially for building muscle and repairing muscle. So I know you are keto, which is, um, this might be hurting your ears. I'm talking about adding in <laughs> carbohydrates, but that might be something to explore, um, bumping up the carbohydrate intake a little bit, um, pairing that with a consistent scheduled training program. So that's another big piece about seeing results with the training. It needs to be planned and consistent. So doing the same types of exercises for at least eight weeks, 12 weeks, and also tracking the amount of weight that you're lifting so that you can keep going up. So progressive overload, progressively overloading the muscles with good nutrition and recovery is what will help build the muscle back up and actually help with body fat reduction as well. High protein diet and weight training is um, at the top of the list supporting someone who has a fat loss goal. 
All right, Chiwei, thank you so much, David. Thank you so much for your call. We're at that time in the program where we have so many people calling. I'm going to try to speed the pace up uh, on my part, also the caller's part. And uh, Chiwei, let's see if we can get through some of these. Uh, Peter Barch is in Woodstock, Ontario. Hi, Peter. Hi. What's your question for Chiwei? Well, my question is uh, regarding my wife, whom I love very much. (laughs) I'm a very uh, active person, and I'm very healthy. Um, my wife is is not so much. She has a diff- she's a teacher, so she's um, she sits a lot and stuff like that. And she wants to get active, but it's a sensitive topic. So I was just wondering if maybe like how do I approach that like for her, like to help her to get more active. Chiwe. Yeah, so it definitely has to come from her. And I love that you're saying, how can you be supportive to her? Um, But maybe um, asking her some questions about what she feels would be exciting to do, fun to do. And you mentioned that her work, so being a teacher. um, So to me, it sounds like there needs to be some solutions around that, if that's the barrier for her to become more active. So what is her work schedule like, her day like, where are there pockets of time where she could add in exercise? So a lot of times we're like, okay, we want to get more active and we just think it's going to happen, but we have to plan for it. So maybe helping her brainstorm those pieces as to schedule, time, you know, where you can add in movement and then, well, what are we going to do? And if she's a social person, if, you know, the two of you spending time together is a way to add in more movement, maybe it's doing it together, going for a walk after supper or on the weekend, or maybe joining a group of people who are doing something that's active also. Fantastic. Thank you very much for both the call and the answer. Pat Ruby is uh, calling from Calgary and Pat, uh, I love your question. I think this is going to resonate with so many people. Why don't you go ahead and, and put the question to Chiwe? Um, the the question is basically, what do you do? Or do you have any tricks or tips about cravings? Because I cannot have sweets. I have a sweet tooth, um, but I cannot have sweets as long as I don't get started. But you know, if I have if I have chocolates one day, then I want chocolates the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and I crave them. And I I'm, I'd like to break that cycle. Over Christmas is fine. I give myself permission. But I'd like to not be craving those sweets every day now. I can't wait to hear the answer to this one, <laughs> Chiwe. Help, help, help Pat and I out of this craving. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'm going to try to make this as short as possible, but there's a few <laughs> there's a few things happening here. So when it comes to food cravings, you can experience food cravings for a few different reasons. One is our physiological response to the foods that we eat, meaning our blood sugar response. So the, the best way to have that not be part of the equation is having a balanced blood sugar throughout the day. So having complex carbohydrates, which is fiber, eating enough protein and eating consistently throughout the day. Breakfast, lunch, supper, snacks in between if needed. That's keeping your blood sugar stable so you don't have those drops in blood sugar that make you think about chocolate or you know high carb foods. Um, another thing is how we think about food. So if we think some foods are good or bad, we tend to start to think about the bad foods a little bit more. Like if we can't have chocolate, then you automatically start thinking about that chocolate a bit more. So kind of having neutrality with food um, can help to take away that like mental or um, over-focus on food that we think that we can't have. Um, and then also just some planning. So having good nutritious food available all the time. And I, I you mentioned permission. Giving yourself permission to eat is, is really key here because when you give yourself permission to eat any food in any amount, 
Um, people kind of panic when I say that, but really what <laughs> happens is you actually eat the exact right amount of food for you. And it, most often it's less than what you were eating when you were restricting food. So I hope some of that is helpful. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that's terrific. Pat, uh, does that make sense? Yeah, that was that was helpful. I, yeah. I thought I'd just add too for the Zumba fan that phoned yes. earlier that some places do aqua Zumba. And oh. so you can get the fun of Zumba, but do it in a pool. Yeah. They have some classes for that in Calgary. I don't okay. know if the, where the caller was from. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, Pat. And uh, Chiwei, let me, there's one last question here that I think there might be a short answer to. Will Turnberg uh, is in Victoria and he wants to know the answer to this. He says he has a problem putting on weight. He's tall and skinny, uh, but he's 10 pounds under his ideal body weight. Other than lifting weights, uh, what should he be considering, he asks, to gain some healthy weight? I've got about maybe 45 seconds for the answer. Sure. So that's going to be carbohydrates. So maybe bumping that up. Um, uh, protein for sure. So eating enough protein. So each meal, breakfast, lunch, and supper, adding in snacks as well. Healthy fats, avocado, olive oil, nuts and seeds, um, and maybe a protein powder. So a really good clean protein powder, about five grams of carbs, um, 100 or 150 calories to help bump up your protein if you're having a hard time getting it through food. That's great. Imagine that, uh, needing to put on weight. I'm not, <laughs> not familiar with that problem, Will. Uh, but anyway, Chiwei, always great having you on the program. Really good advice, really clearly told. And thank you very much for taking part in the program. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year, everybody. Yeah. Chiwei Asaguara is a personal trainer and a registered dietitian, and we reached her in Winnipeg. That's it for Checkup, the podcast this week. You've been listening to Cross Country Checkup's live broadcast on CBC Radio from January 7th, 2024. If you would like to share comments or appear on the show, you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Thanks to everyone who helped this week. Our phone screeners are Mackenzie Ribello, Chuck Molgat, and Celine Aaron. Our TV team is Caleb Isaac, Frankie Fiorini, Brendan Sylvia, Ali Al-Rohani, and Richard Grundy. Technical production and editing from Will Yar and Matthias Wolfson. Program assistant is Kiata Greco. Cross-country checkup was produced this week by Abby Plenner, Ruksar Ali, and Rachel DeGasparis. Our digital producer is Sanisha Yolich. The senior producer of the program is Steve Howard, and I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. The next edition of Checkup, the podcast, will be posted after the live show next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.